So throughout the winter and spring of 2021, there was a common conversation that was happening around the country on Zoom calls, in reopening cafes and restaurants, in line at the store, and in countless other spaces. What did you get? The conversation started. The J&J, &J, the Pfizer, or the fill in the blank for me, the Moderna, right? You all remember the conversation? You all participate in it? Just for fun, let's go ahead and do our own little poll. Who started off this whole COVID vaccine process with Johnson & Johnson? Anyone? Oh, okay. What about Pfizer? Oh, lots of Pfizer's here. Anyone else Moderna like me? Okay, me and Michael. <laughs> so if you were me and Michael, <laughs> you were one of the millions of people across the country who were receiving a shot from a company that prior to 2020, unless you were in the biomedical research game, you probably had never heard of, right? Moderna was essentially a startup. It was a 10-year-old a, a company with big valuations from investors, but prior to COVID, no actual products on the market. And yet, within a few weeks of shots being put in arms in early 2021, Moderna had become a household name. It was part of that conversation that was happening everywhere. Now, what put Moderna on the map and ahead of other long-time established companies was a new kind of technology for vaccines, right? Vaccines engineered differently using something called messenger RNA or mRNA. In the past, most vaccines involved injecting someone with a bit of weakened or inactivated virus, using this to trigger the body's immune response so it could create antibodies that could fight off the actual virus when it was encountered. But mRNA vaccines worked differently. There was no virus in them. Instead, they're engineered to teach the body how to make a certain kind of protein that would trigger the immune response. It was a completely new model for how a vaccine could work. And it's ended up being a significant, powerful tool in battling this ongoing pandemic. And yes, all of you who had Pfizer also had a new mRNA vaccine. <laughs> but how did this happen? How did this startup no one had heard of called Moderna land on this pioneering technology? Many who had not heard of them uh, before the pandemic assumed it was like a story of overnight success. But those who are involved in the company over the last decade don't see it that way. For them, the development of Moderna's groundbreaking mRNA vaccine was not a lucky lightning strike, was not a eureka moment kind of breakthrough discovery. It was the result of a 10-year process that had been employed um, to launch a number of ventures in the life sciences field, all backed by Moderna's parent company, this venture creation firm called Flagship Pioneering. Now, what makes this company Flagship interesting is that they pursue a different philosophy around innovation of new technology from what many in the corporate world currently focus on. So often our culture thinks of like game-changing innovation, disruptive innovation as the result of some stroke of luck or total genius. We think that breakthrough innovation happens, like it's chaotic, it's random, it's hard to predict. Who's gonna land on like the million dollar, billion dollar idea? Um, but Flagship believes innovation can actually be cultivated over time through a process that they model on how we see growth and change happen in the natural world. 
the process of evolution. So rather than gambling on a number of initiatives and then quickly, quickly killing all the ones that don't deliver fast results, which is how a lot of venture capitalists do it, Flagship takes a different approach. They pursue something they call emergent discovery, a process that they model on evolution itself. So the technology of mRNA wasn't discovered in one big aha moment. It was a decade of trial and error and many iterations of different kinds of experiments so that when 2020 came, this company, along with the company that developed the technology behind the Pfizer vaccine, they'd been slowly refining their understanding of mRNA, including how it could be used in vaccines, amongst other things. So they were poised to respond. The breakthrough technology that made the Moderna an overnight success arrived after 10 years of slow, methodical, winding, and yet moving forward over time, evolution. Now I tell this story because we're in the midst of a series I'm calling Community Evolving, considering the reality that we're a part of a process of growth and change also that happens over time. As we've been considering, this process doesn't just happen in the realm of biology. It doesn't just happen in the cultivation of new technology. It can be a part of our spiritual and communal life as well. So two weeks ago, we talked about how our understanding can evolve. We can view the world through different lenses over time. Our knowledge through the years hopefully expands as we move through life. And with that expansion, we might come to view things differently. And when we think about spirituality, it means that our understanding of the divine, our, our theology is also inevitably evolving. And this isn't a process to be feared. It's one to be celebrated, embraced, with the hope that the spirit is in the midst of our unfolding understanding, leading us forward into more and more truth, into seeing God more fully as God is. I shared a model a couple weeks ago of the progression that this unfolding understanding often can take for folks, moving through potentially four different stages of understanding the world and understanding faith. And as I named in that teaching, this evolving of understanding thing, I don't think it's really new. Though he may not have used the language of evolution, expanding, adapting, growing our thinking is what I believe Jesus was all about. And that shift and expansion of understanding wasn't just theoretical. It had implications. So today, I want us to consider the impact of a change in understanding. How does our evolving thinking then impact the way we live? Just like new understandings of the immune system have led to new kinds of vaccines, what might new spiritual understandings lead to in terms of new ways of embodying faith? So as we consider this question, I'm gonna invite us to look at a passage from the stories of the life of Jesus that we find in Luke. This passage might be familiar to some of us, and whether you've heard it before or not, I invite you to listen to the story with fresh curiosity around how Jesus might be inviting those he encounters, not just to evolve in their thinking, but to recognize the need to evolve in other ways too. So a bit of context, this episode's located pretty early in Jesus's ministry. He has just begun preaching, calling followers, performing miracles, 
And right before this story in each of the Gospels, he performs one particularly amazing healing, in which a person who's paralyzed is lowered from the ceiling of the home he's speaking in, and Jesus both pronounces the man's sins forgiven and then heals his paralysis, instructing the man to pick up his mat that he's lying on and walk, which he does. And from there, we pick things up in Luke 5, starting with verse 27. And now that we have the screen again, uh, Joanna will share it on the screen. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him, and he got up and followed him, leaving everything behind. And then Levi gave a great banquet in his house for Jesus. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their experts in the law complained to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples frequently fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours continue to eat and drink. So Jesus said to them, you cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But those days are coming, and when the bridegroom is taken from them, at that time they will fast. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. If he does, he will have torn the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spoil, spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is good enough. So the crux of this passage, as I read it, is that Jesus is doing something new. He has an understanding of the sacred, an understanding of what God is up to in the world that looks a bit different than what's come before. His understanding has evolved from what preceded it. And that's creating some dissonance with folks that Jesus is encountering. What does that evolution look like? Well, in this passage, it clearly includes an evolving understanding around who the divine connects with. Jesus seems to think differently about who God includes and shows concern for. So we see this first as Jesus approaches Levi, who is also known as Matthew, same person, um, who the text tells us is a tax collector. Now, if we think of tax collectors and we picture the IRS, we might likely think of annoying bureaucrats, right? Maybe people who are a bit stuffy, quite scrupulous, annoyingly so, but like hardly scandalous. But that's not what being a tax collector meant in first century Palestine. Remember, Jesus lived in a society that was under occupation, the Roman army occupied the Jewish communities in Palestine and extracted significant taxes from them. But they did that by working with locals in the various regions of the empire. And so Jewish tax collectors were often seen as traitors to their communities. They, they are the ones who are complicit with the occupying empire. They work to extract the funds from their fellow community members, often with very aggressive tactics, 
and regularly take more than they owe the Romans so they can pocket the profits for themselves. You might think of them as the robber barons of their day, the mob bosses, the gangsters of their communities. In the ancient Jewish text, the Talmud, tax collectors were classified by ancient rabbis in a category alongside murderers and robbers. And the resources that they acquired were considered by, by those in this ancient Jewish culture to be so tainted by violence and deceit that their money was considered unfit to be accepted even for charity. And yet, here Jesus is, not only inviting Levi slash Matthew to follow him, to become his own disciple, but he seems to have no problem feasting on the fruit of Matthew's ill-gotten gains. Jesus allows Levi to throw him a party along with all of his friends. And they all, the disciples of Jesus, and, and these they mix it all up with Levi's tax collector crowd. And the religious people of Jesus' day, they see this happening. They do not get it. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, they ask. And Jesus speaks to his evolved understanding. His mission is to reach those outside the present spiritual community. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to change, to repentance, he says. I don't think Jesus actually is trying to say that his new friends alone, these are the sinners and, and everyone else has like got it all together. He's showing he's concerned with those who know they have need. The religious people think they're the righteous ones. They're not ill. They don't need a doctor. They've got it figured out. They don't need any help from Jesus, thank you very much. But these folks like Levi, like his friends. They see in Jesus' acceptance something more than an invitation just to friendship. They see an invitation to take a journey of faith with someone who's willing to meet them where they're at, who cares about them, who includes them in his evolving spiritual path. So Jesus practices his faith in a different way than the Pharisees, and other well-meaning religious Jewish folk of his time, like even John the Baptist and his followers. Jesus eats with a different crowd. He doesn't coach his followers to fast twice a week like many of the others did in that time. He's, though he certainly acknowledges fasting has its place. And he uses these two little parables at the end of the passage to explain why he does things differently than many of those around him. The first is referring to using fresh fabric to patch an old garment. And the idea here is that new fabric can be likely to shrink. And when that happens, like if you put it on an old piece of, of garment, it's going to tear the hole even worse, making the problem worse than it was before. The other parable is about the making of wine. Now, in Jesus' day, wine was often fermented. It was aged and turned from juice to wine. In, in goatskin bags called wineskins. So the goatskin was somewhat flexible. It had a little bit of pliability to it when it was fresh, um, which would allow the wine to, as, as gas was being released as it fermented, the bag would expand. And it had enough flexibility in the goatskin to allow for that expansion and for the shift to take place, for the juice to become wine. But a used wineskin, had already been stretched out. It was inevitably more brittle. 
If you tried to pour the unfermented wine in, when the gas was released, the skin would simply crack and break and ruin both the skin and the wine. That's the metaphor he's using. So both of these little parables seem to illustrate this truth that Jesus recognized, that old and new aren't always compatible. When the divine is doing something new, like reaching a new population with a new understanding, it might not fit with the old model. New models, new expressions, new wineskins might be needed. When I think about the point Jesus seems to be making with these little stories, they seem particularly interesting to me when viewed through this lens of evolving. Jesus tells a story about new wine. He's not talking about a totally new, different kind of beverage than has ever existed. He's not saying we should switch from wine to beer. He's working with a known quantity, wine, but it's a fresh version, new wine. Something that's in the vein of what has come before, but is also original. A new generation, you could say, a part of the evolution of wine. As Jesus said in the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, he hasn't come to abolish the law. He's not here to replace what's come before, but to fulfill it. He's building on what has come before. He's bringing a new expression of something which has existed. But this new expression has implications. Embracing God's invitation to the tax collector and his buddies means you got to let go of some of the, under, of the habits and customs around what it might mean to be spiritual. New understanding leads to new practice, and this transformation that Jesus demonstrated would continue in the era to come as the early church continued to explore the ways that the newer wine that was being cultivated in their midst also needed newer containers. So for those of you who are familiar with the stories from the early church, like we see in the book of Acts. Isn't that the kind of work we see? New wineskins being created when Philip baptizes a eunuch from Ethiopia on the side of the road. New wineskins when Peter visits the home of a non-Jewish person, a Gentile named Cornelius, and shares with him and all of his friends the good news about Jesus. New wineskins when Paul argues that the faith they are practicing no longer requires men to be circumcised to connect with the divine and be filled with the Holy Spirit. All of these were like innovations in winemaking, new wineskins being crafted for the new wine the Spirit was fermenting in their midst. Of course, as Luke tells it, Jesus understood from the get-go not everyone was going to appreciate the new wine nor the wineskin it came in. We hear this in his last statement. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, this old is good enough. Some translations say it even stronger. The old is better. What's interesting is that this line doesn't really criticize those who want to hold on to the old wine. It seems to understand where they're coming from. They're happy with what they have. It's good for them. These folks see no need for anything different. Let's think about it from the perspective of that framework we considered a couple weeks ago. Maybe those in stage one or two, what we called um, simplicity, complexity, 
they might be quite content where they are. They see no need for the concerns of stages three, perplexity, or four, harmony. But for those for whom stage one and two no longer bring life, perhaps the wine is turned bitter. A new fresh wine is needed, and with it new containers for it to grow and expand. From this point of view, both wines have their place. One doesn't have to negate the other, but Jesus' call in his moment is to bring the new and to connect with those for whom the new brings life. So what does all this have to do with us here in this haven space? For me, this conversation about cultivating new wineskins gets right to the heart of our very existence, <laughs> what it is we're trying to build here. Long before I felt compelled to become a pastor, before I felt drawn to the idea of starting spiritual community, I struggled with the reality that this powerful faith connection with Jesus that I was experiencing in college was somehow not accessible to my gay friends because I knew the churches and communities where I was encountering Jesus didn't have the understanding or the models to welcome them. New models of spiritual community were needed, not just to welcome and include our LGBTQ family members and friends, but also so many others who haven't been welcomed home within the church for whatever reason, for whom the containers maybe no longer worked. So we moved to Berkeley and started gathering with some folks here with a big what if kind of question. What if a more inclusive, affirming, expansive kind of church could exist? Over time, the vision got refined, the questions more specific. What if a community could be built that valued creating safety, cultivating diversity, centering around Jesus, and his expression of spirituality, could there be new wine that was flavored uniquely by those three values? What wineskins might be needed for that wine to mature and expand? The folks at Flagship Pioneering who pursue emergent discovery, they also believe in the big what if questions. The origin of Moderna was a team gathered around the speculative question, what if, what if you could engineer mRNA to help patients make their own medicine naturally in their body? Could that be done? Such an idea had never been tested. It was in some ways a wild hypothesis. But the model of innovation they were pursuing believed you had to start there. You had to be willing to ask the wild question. So you had something to experiment with. Like, what if tax collectors were actually included? What if? What if? For the flagship innovators, there's an expectation that the first what if question you ask, it might not even be the right one. But it's only in experimenting that you can learn what the better question is and allow the problem you're hoping to solve actually become refined. And as you experiment, you see over time what works, what doesn't. You can continue to follow the trail slowly of what is working, allowing the direction of what is being built to emerge. You may end up answering a totally different question than you started with, but the question and its answer are more powerful as a result of this journey of growth. 
this feels kind of helpful to me as I think about the evolution of our little community. How we have evolved thus far and how we are still evolving. In many ways, we've been running experiments for the last eight years, trying to hone in on what models are helpful, what wineskins are most suited for the wine that's being cultivated in whatever present moment we're in. And there have been a number of shifts along the way. And when we started gathering as a small group meeting on Sunday afternoons in my living room, sharing a Bible study, singing some songs, praying, lots of kids running around, followed by community dinner. A couple of you might remember that phase, right? And after a season, we outgrew the house and we began hosting public services. But in many ways, those were structured based on the ways many of us at the time, at least, had experienced what church looked like on a Sunday. Some songs, some preaching, some chairs gathered together in a room, <laughs> kind of like what we're doing here. But even more, you know, like what was shaped, what we had been shaped by before. A lot of us, like myself, came from a charismatic evangelical background, so our style reflected that, even if our theology didn't quite. But particularly in the wake of Trump's election, those who came from that evangelical space found themselves with a lot to sort through and dismantle. We were in perhaps perplexity, trying to figure out um, what to do next. We began honing in on that vision of safe, diverse, Jesus-centered. I began preaching about smashing idols of whiteness and patriarchy and heteronormativity and even evangelicalism itself. And with the idols smashing around us came the questions, how do our forms need to change as this wine is fermenting? What if we spend some of our time each Sunday, say, interacting with each other, sharing ideas and responses rather than just listening to one person's thoughts. That was a part of the wineskin. What if we could embody the reality that we believe God's not actually a man, even though patriarchy leads us to imagine God that way? So using gender expansive language for the divine became part of the wineskin. What if we don't need to actually have a service every Sunday became another experiment as we experience new freedom, exploring rhythms of gathering that fit our unique context as a small community, drawing from a diverse group of people from throughout the Bay Area and beyond. And now, a year plus, after a year plus of experimenting with how to make virtual church kind of engaging, <laughs> we find ourselves asking, what kinds of practices and gatherings bring life now after COVID has changed so much? And honestly, I think we're still figuring it out. We're a community that overall numbers wise is about the same in terms of like, do people kind of, I think, consider us their spiritual home if they have one as before the pandemic. But obviously this feels different because the way people participate has clearly shifted. So we have this small group here today in person. We have some people here online. We have some folks who still considered us their spiritual community, but haven't generally been attending our ser Sunday services recently. So what does that mean? They may be opting to engage in our small groups or our Connection Sundays, our retreat, um, but this is a different kind of wineskin. And it, it begs the question, you know, where do we focus our energies? And what kind of new experiments might we need? In many ways, we look different than what we looked like when we started eight years ago. We think differently, we gather differently, 
And that points, I think, to development. But in other ways, I think we have still work to do, allowing further discovery to emerge. I think there's room to run more experiments, to go further in asking what spiritual practices, what modes of worship, what styles of teaching, what collaborative projects might we spend our time on? What do we need to let go of? Because it just doesn't fit the moment that we're in and the wine that we are uniquely cultivating. I don't think we've arrived at some idealized version of spiritual community. And honestly, I hope we never do. I think we're ever a work in progress as the spirit moves in fresh ways in our midst. So let's do that together. While we are in progress, may we remain supple, willing to bend as we need to. May we not allow our containers for cultivating community become brittle. May we continue to be open to new possibilities. And as we do, may we see beautiful life giving things mature, like fine wine in our midst. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go into our time of discussion. Spirit, I think of those um, who I believe were well-meaning, sincere, religious folk of Jesus' day who just didn't get it, couldn't understand the new wine. They were quite happy with the wine they had. And on one level, I hear grace for that. I hear grace for that in your words, Jesus. They have the wine they want. They think it's better. But I also feel a sadness, a, a grief that those folks missed out on experiencing something new that could have been profoundly transformative, that could have been delightful to also experience, that could have evolved, been a part of their evolution in beautiful ways. We recognize that in some ways, change, embracing evolution <laughs> is challenging. It's not always clear exactly what this new wine is in our midst or how, how to tend it, what models are needed for it. But I do trust that you have been with us in this journey over these years, in all of these evolutions, and we invite you to continue to lead us forward, that we might remain supple, that we might remain open to seeing you in our midst and to be willing to build the new containers with you to contain the, that which you are cultivating, that which you are fermenting among us. Would you stir our imaginations with bold what-if kinds of questions? And would you speak with wisdom to us about how to follow those questions forward? Amen.